I'm your host, Amber Hollingsworth. I'm an addiction specialist, and I've been helping people beat addiction for more than 20 years now. This podcast is for people who want to know how to get through to an addicted loved one, for people who are tired of being told that they just need to stand back and wait for their loved one to decide to do something about it. Subscribe to this podcast to learn how to outsmart addiction and put this whole mess behind you for good. In 2010, I got off the airplane in Raleigh, North Carolina, and I was arrested and I'd been working at sobriety. Now I wasn't completely sober, but I was doing a lot better with things. And I thought like my past was somewhat behind me for something, but I stepped off this airplane in Raleigh coming back for a visit from Canada and I got arrested right there. That was really one of the big moments where I realized I needed to make changes for my life. It was just kind of that weird thing because I wasn't at a rock bottom at that point in my life. Like things were decently okay. And I guess in a way I kind of hit one of my biggest rock bottoms. And it just reminded me of like the past is sometimes you have to deal with stuff. Things don't always just go away because you're trying to better yourself and trying to get sober. That's what I kind of took from it. I mean, it must've felt like kind of unfair though, right? Like you're trying to do good. You had your life getting on track and now out of nowhere arrested. Yeah. I mean, it all happened so quick too. I can see that angle for it, but I had done so much other stuff in my life that I wasn't necessarily busted for. So I think it all just kind of caught up with me. And looking back, it was actually the best thing to really ever happen in my life. It was like, is another strange thing to say, but it was a different but incredible experience. Was there like a warrant out for you? Like, did you have an idea that that could happen? Or was it like, what the heck? Yeah, yeah no, <laughs> no, good question. Yeah, there were definitely warrants. But leading up to that for the previous year, I was really heavy into my addiction. So I had no car, no driver's license, no job. I was living on my brother's floor of his apartment. I was living a pretty low-key life. So they were obviously looking for me. I used to get phone calls, right, from FedEx. They would say, oh, it's FedEx, and you have a, a package, right, that you have to sign for. So oh, meet I've us heard of this. Yeah, yeah, so meet us at your parents' place. And I was like, like, I just described my life, and obviously nobody was sending me anything important in the mail from FedEx that I didn't know about that I needed to sign, right? You won a prize. Right. I used to get these calls. And I never put the pieces of the puzzle together until two years later what this was. But I had an idea there was warrants, but I did not have an idea of how serious they were. Like I didn't, this was all for, for drug trafficking charges. And I had sold narcotics to an undercover police officer that my friend, friend I thought was my, I mean, he was a friend. I mean, he got caught too. Like there's no blame on him, but he kind of set up this deal. I wasn't living that life. I never was really into drug dealing. The only drug dealing I ever did was to support a habit of addiction. It wasn't right. like buy yachts and anything fancy. I mean, it was kind of a strange thing to get wrapped up into. But yeah, they were calling all the time. Need this, need that. And, and I'm just like, I don't know anybody. I really didn't know anybody. And then a couple of times I caved into it. And uh, like, I mean, we're talking maybe two, $300. And, and then you end up with eight felony count of drug trafficking. Wow. But I mean, like, right. it's, yeah, it's interesting. But I mean, full accountability on my end too, right? Like my arm wasn't twisted that much to where I had to go through with this. I obviously made choices. What was it about that moment that was different? Because to me, it sounds like one of those, I call them like a moment of clarity where it's just like, 
I knew. Like I just saw it differently and I knew something different. What was it that happened at that moment that changed for you? Yeah, well, when, when I got off the airplane too, like my life was better in a, in a lot of aspects. When I got off that airplane, I, I was dating this girl for like tried three years beforehand. And she was incredible. And she, she was going to pick me up from the airport that day. We were going to reconnect. And we'd been talking on the mobile and stuff for a while while I was living up in Canada. And we were going to reconnect. So I was excited for this. To kind of be a different person, right? I was just not doing well. And that showed in relationships and, and everything else in my life. And uh, when the cops put me up on the car to do their search and like pat you down and, and everything like that, I saw her out of the corner of my eye. I saw her drive by the laneway. Every airport's got like the pickup lane. She's just coming to pick you up, right? Like Yeah. And when she drove by, she had, didn't have any idea I was on the back of this cop car. But I saw her out of the corner of my eye and she just had a smile from ear to ear. Like a, this was like an opportunity for us to, to reconnect and stuff. And I was excited and she was excited. And I had this overwhelming kind of experience then to where I just was thinking to myself, like, you got to stop letting other people down and you got to stop letting yourself down ultimately. And I kind of made this little promise to myself, I guess you could say that um, that was enough of that, that I was going to do really whatever it took. And I didn't set out to get sober. I didn't set out to just be a good person, be a better person, follow through with what I say I'm going to do and show up in the world better than how I've been operating for the last five, six years. And uh, soon after that, I found out like if I was going to do any of that, like the way I used drugs and drank alcohol, I would have to include sobriety into that because it wasn't possible for me. Once the substances hit, then that was all I was worried about. So that's interesting. So your thought was, I don't want to let anybody else down. I don't want to, I don't want to feel this way. I want to be a better person. But even in that moment, even though you sort of made that resolution to yourself, you still didn't quite connect that it was the drugs and alcohol that was causing you to be the person that was disappointing people. It, that took longer. It sounds, when did that part come? Yeah. Well, I mean, that probably wasn't until I was in jail for a bit. Like I wouldn't say it was a long process to f put two and two together. I started going to groups. I started going to meetings, yeah, talking to other people and reading books. I quickly figured out that that was going to have to be part of this process. So when they arrested you, they took you to jail. How long were you looking at? What were you talking about? Like three months, three years? Yeah, no, I think it was something like 20 years. 20 years? Yeah. Yeah. I know. Overwhelming. Yeah. But uh, things actually played out in my favor. I mean, for a lot of different reasons, it was kind of a give and take scenario towards the end. I waited about seven months to go to court. My, my folks too were kind of done supporting this journey financially. I had been arrested other times. I was a convicted felon at 18. I got first charged when I was 16. I pled guilty to misdemeanor. I was on probation. From 16 to 17, I was on felony probation from 19 or 20. I had to submit DNA sample and fingerprints. So I kind of, I had a big history of addiction, right? Like I had been to a treatment program for 17 months. I had been to countless meetings, celebrate recovery, NA, all the different groups. I'd been to therapy counseling. I mean, since I was just young, since I can remember when I was 10 and 11, it wasn't for addiction, but it was for dysfunction and behaviors. I was diagnosed with ADHD, put on Adderall. When I got into high school, put on medications for depression, anxiety. 
And uh, so there was a long history of this stuff. What the lawyer kind of was presenting is that I was someone who struggled with substance use disorder. And, and that was the truth. I, I was not a drug dealer type fella. So we were able to kind of prove that without a doubt. The lawyer was able to grab four or five binders. I mean, they were this thick of all the paperwork over the years that kind of helped me out with that. And uh, after about seven months, I went to court and it, it was the wildest day, right? So things kept getting pushed off, pushed off. My grandparents came through, they hired this attorney. It's like 25 grand for this guy. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, these are expensive consequences. And I go into the courtroom one day and it keeps getting pushed off. I don't even know if I'm going to court today and I'm in the bullpen, but it's like everybody waiting for court. I mean, it's complete chaos. Like if, if you had a room full of five-year-olds, but like where everybody's just going crazy, like a small bedroom and they're mm -hmm. all just bouncing around because the anxiety and everybody's getting sentenced and it's like, mm -hmm. oh man, we're getting, and it wasn't good for people. <laughs> you're, you're like waiting to have this moment, which is like a huge moment in your life. And I'm thinking everybody's coming back to like five years, 10 years. And most of these people have been around the block a few times. So they kind of know what's up. Like, it's just, it's a strange environment, right? It's like, yeah, let's go. I'll see you in a couple of weeks at the, the penitentiary and stuff. And this cannot be my life. Like how the heck did I end up here? So they come in and they pull me out of this area and they bring me to like another floor and I've got the leg shackles and the bond was set at $250,000. So obviously like I'm not bonding out. So I was in jail for the seven, eight months to go to the court date. And then they put me in this quieter, this little bullpen area. So it was much more relaxed. And I was in there for maybe 15, 20 minutes. My lawyer comes in and the lawyer says, Brad, they won't agree to the plea, right? We were looking for like eight months for the judge, for the DA to, to agree on eight months. And then we just go up and I plead guilty to everything. So he's like, the only other option we really have right now is that you can go and do an open plea. So I'm like, okay. And the lawyer, they don't spend much time with you. It's not like he came in and told me about this stuff before. And I've been in jail for eight months. I've seen him for maybe 15, 20 minutes. So he says, we can do this open plea. This is basically the DA and me come to the agreement to leave it up to the judge. We'll present the case. And I've just seen this stuff on TV, right? Where you're presenting this case and it's like maybe an hour long and talking about this guy's history and why he's such a good guy and we shouldn't, you know, put him away forever. And it was none of that. It was about four minutes of them talking up at the bench there. So yeah, he explained the open plea. Hey, it's going to be up to the judge to decide right here on the spot. Like, is it 20 years or is it eight months? It's up to him to figure out. It was the You're just the sitting there watching them talk about your fate. Ooh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I'm sure there's a lot that probably happened behind the scenes too, like beforehand, before this went in. I just had to trust the guy. He wasn't looking for my input. I'll tell, I'll tell you that. And one of the sad things about all this too, though, is when I went to the courtroom, it was, it was empty, but it was my mom and my brother. And not that I wanted anybody to be there because that would have been extremely strange, but it's kind of like with all the years, me running around and I thought I meant something to people. And like, I belonged somewhere and I had a purpose in people's lives. Like what that just showed me is really at the end of the day, I just didn't, I, I just didn't. None of that stuff mattered. The stuff I thought mattered, it didn't. This is my mom and my brother sitting in here and I'm like in a jumpsuit and in handcuffs, legs and hands. And this is where I am. And so it's kind of a, it was a strange experience, but 
I'll never forget it because the judge sits back in his chair, right? It's almost five o'clock, like four o'clock, and they're probably done soon, right? And all of us have had a job, and we all know when it gets to the end of the day, we might be a little bit sloppy or we might be in a hurry to get to the, the hockey game or the supper with friends. And I'm thinking, mm-hmm. oh, my gosh, this guy is – he's going to bury me, and, and he's going to go to supper afterwards, and everything is going to be done, and I'm going to be like – I'm going to be screwed. So he leans back in his chair. He takes off his glasses. I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm just shaking. I'm literally shaking. I'm praying to whatever will listen in my head, right? Not out loud, but in my head, I'm thinking, my goodness, there's something out there. Help me out. Help me out right now. And uh, he actually sat back in his chair and it took him took him only a few seconds. And he, he sat forward. He signed the paperwork. He said eight, six to eight months, Department of Corrections. And I was like, oh, wow, I just I just got a second shot at all this. And part of the deal was, now there was, a, there was a deal to it that I would have to plead guilty to all the felonies. I think it was about six felony charges. And because I lived in the U.S. since I was like six, seven, but I only held a green card. I wasn't a citizen. Then I could be deported back to Canada where I was born. And I haven't lived in Canada since I was six. I didn't really know anybody beyond my family type deal. But that was kind of part of the deal because they knew once I got convicted of all the felonies that I would qualify for deportation. So I ended up finishing up my time there. And then I then I got transferred over to ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement. That was a four-month process. You couldn't buy your own plane ticket. I had a passport and everything. Other nationalities would be shipped out every day. But there was some problem with being Canadian that it took four months. So they would jump me from jail to jail every couple of weeks. I'd go from North Carolina here, there, South Carolina, Tennessee. And I ended up in Atlanta, Georgia, Hall County, actually, first for a couple months. And then I ended up in Atlanta, Georgia, like two nights before they brought me downtown. And I had an idea I was going home after that. So then the next morning they say, yeah, pack your stuff. And uh, they brought me right into the back of the airport there, Atlanta International Airport, brought me up flight of stairs. I had no shoelaces. Everything I owned was literally, only thing I owned was a box. It was a box of paperwork. That's all I had to my name on that day. And, uh, but it was, it was a great day. And that's wow. kind of, I got the, the one-way flight back and my life really started over. So. Wow. So they fly you to Canada and then you get off an airplane and then you just go your own way. Is that what happens? Yeah, pretty much. When I got off the airplane, the customs in Canada, they were like, where have you been? They obviously already knew. Like, yeah, I'm sure Mm -hmm. they would have told them, right? So they interviewed me, the police officers there in the airport. They interviewed me, checked my record and stuff. I never lived in Canada or anything. So there was no problem. And they were good. They were good. Hey, do you have somewhere to go? Do you have someone picking you up? Like they weren't just going to throw me out like in the middle of the city, but uh, yeah, my uncle picked me up and that's when I started living with my, uh, my grandparents took me in to, to live with them. Wow. I mean, when I listen to you tell that story, it's just almost like in my mind, I visualize you almost like a paper doll in like orange jumpsuit, just in the wind, whichever way the wind blows. I mean, it must feel like you had zero control. You just like, didn't know where you're going to land. Don't know what things are going to happen. And you're just at the mercy, I guess I would say. Yeah, yeah, that's a great way to put it. But even though that situation was heavy and all that stuff is so true, like that situation was a lot more beautiful than like using drugs every single day because that story right there had a possibility at some point, even if it was after 20 years, at some point there would be a happy ending to that story. And uh, that's kind of why I'm grateful for it because 
the other way of me using substances all day and every day. That life, continuing with that is not going to provide a good result for me anyway. I was headed downhill real fast. So let's back up then and tell me about sort of what all led to this situation at the airport. When did it start? What were you addicted to? How did it come to this? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's a long, that's a long story, Amber. I mean, I think growing up too, my mom had twins when she was 16, right? So that I think from the beginning, without anybody even knowing that the odds were going to be a little bit difficult. So my grandparents helped raise us while my mom went back to school. She went to school for nursing and my grandparents used to raise us. But what I remember from that time is not much, but I just remember kind of getting my way with things, right? Grandparents, they're going to look after you. They're going to get you, yeah, what you want which is incredible, but I don't know if that's the healthiest thing to have 24 seven, because then you have a hard time hearing no. So then my mom got a job in Texas and we left when I was about six years old. And then now it's my mom, my brother and I, and she's raising us on her own, right? We went from a five bedroom house, a lot of stability to a lot of unknown babysitters, two bedroom apartment. My brother and I shared a room, mom working nights, right? Just starting nursing career, right? She's working overnight, sleeping during the day. And I started to just feel like I didn't belong in the world. I felt a lot of rejection and it wasn't even necessarily others actions that was rejecting me, but I just felt like I just wasn't part of this world. I felt like I was in a snow globe and the world was going on around me. And I felt like that, like, my whole life up until like I ended up getting sober and ended up like looking at what happened. I, I got stuck for so long in my life thinking drugs and alcohol were the problem, but I didn't realize I had sobered up hundreds of times and absolutely mm-hmm. nothing changed. So that part of not belonging. And then I started to get in trouble, right? I started to get suspended from school in like grade six. I was doing in-school suspension. I just wasn't following rules. I was like hyperactive all mm-hmm. over the place. Never did homework, never passed the test really struggled. And I mean, that destroys your self-esteem too, right? All your classmates are celebrating their, their mm-hmm. scores. And I would just take mine and just put it in a ball and just throw it in my backpack. Right? right. And then I bring it home for my folks. And my folks are like, what's up? I mean, what's going on? You, you don't do anything, get in a fight every night, homework. I don't want to do homework. I, I just want to hang out. So, I mean, just every signal I was getting was just like, I just wasn't good enough. And I didn't feel good enough. So that stuff piled up, right? The voices in my head, the story I told myself. I mean, everything I feel like I just failed, no matter how hard I tried. And then I had a little bit of an operation and I had some pain medication prescribed. And my goodness, I mean, it did exactly that. It took away the pain and it took away the pain in my mind. The emotional pain, yeah. For once I was... I felt like, wow, I can just kind of be with myself. And I couldn't do that before. And there was a whole bunch of other stuff, codependent relationships, trouble with the police too. Like I said, like I was getting in trouble, sneaking out, running away. I mean, you pretty much name it. I probably did part of it. I mean, it was just complete dysfunction. And then when I turned 17, I started to have really bad depression, anxiety. This codependent relationship would trigger this depression. This relationship was as toxic as they get. Like if there was a spark near it, I mean, it would have exploded. And uh, I started to feel suicidal. And I never talked to anybody about any of this stuff, right, growing up, right? And I never mentioned anything to anybody that anything was wrong with my life. Mm -hmm. 
and then I talked to this school counselor and I had mentioned to like what I was thinking and what was going on. And uh, so my parents were like, you got to get into the hospital. Right. So what do you, so I go into the UNC Chapel Hill psychiatric unit and uh, I stay there for a couple days, whatever. I mean, really we just hung out cook for us. Uh, great program, I'm sure, but I didn't see anything wrong with my life. So I'm like, well, what? I mean, this is a big joke. That's how I felt about it. it it's sad looking back. I, you know, hindsight's always 2020, but I may have been able to avoid a lot of the madness if I had been able to just share. I just couldn't share what was going on. I just couldn't do it. I didn't know how to connect the dots. When I was 16, I just felt like my life was over, literally. And I got out of there, and I mean, things weren't better. Better, nothing changed. Maybe for a couple of days, I was like, yeah, I'll do what I need to do. A couple months later, I had another flare-up of this, these suicidal thoughts and stuff. And this time, the behaviors were just bonkers, out of control. So my parents were like, you need to get some help. You need to go to, like, rehab. You know, and I hadn't even started doing drugs or anything yet. But these behaviors, I mean, the, the red flags were... We're there, right? Like this doesn't end good. And they were consulting, right? My parents were always in therapy. My mom was always in therapy. She always did because uh, she learned early on, I think, that she was not going to be able to change me. Mm -hmm. The only way that she was going to be able to maybe get through this was to look after herself, which is a hard conclusion to come to, right? It's this was my problem. These were my mm -hmm. choices, my decisions. But it had such a big impact in, on her that I think that's why she went and got help for herself. So I, ever since I can remember, she's been in therapy. But uh, So they have people come into this psychiatric hospital. I'm back at UNC. I'm a little bit more serious, but I'm not very serious. And they send in this guy. He's a representative for this program. It's a three-month program, behavioral health program. And it was like an hour from where I was at. And I have friends, my, my ability, my brain would only allow me to see to Friday night. And I couldn't see any further. And uh, I said, no, I can't go there. I can't go there. Uh, so my parents had a backup plan and I didn't expect this one, but it forced me to go to another program. So I woke up one morning. It was, uh, it was like my sixth day at the, the hospital there. And it was really strange because they're like, we need your shoes. I think it was just my laces. I said, you guys never got my laces the last time. Well, it's kind of weird. It's kind of weird, right? Like I should be going home any day now. And uh, well, you're a, you're a flight risk. Like flight risk? I never even thought of it at that point. But I started to think of it when they brought it up. So yeah, I woke up one morning and there was this guy. He was kicking on the bed. <clears throat> and he was still big, big, strong guy. And I'm like, oh, this guy doesn't work here. Because it's staffed by nurses, right? Well, I hadn't seen that before. This guy, I mean, he'd been working out for years. They get this bed, and I was like, this is serious. And uh, there was also a woman with them. And they're like, oh, you got to come with us. And they were really friendly and stuff. And I'm like, oh, man, my anxiety was just through the roof. Yeah. We're going to take you to rehab. And I'm like, I don't even know what rehab is. I have no idea what this stuff is. But, yeah, I had to go with them, like, either by choice or they were going to probably force me to go. And then uh, I thought to myself, is like, I'll just figure my parents, I'll talk with them. Like, we'll get this smoothed out, right? It mm -hmm. worked every other time up until that point. I get There's a miscommunication. Out. We can get this worked out. Yeah. Yeah. I always <laughs> get on the phone with my folks. Like, I'll tell mom I'm going to change and, and we'll get everything figured out. This will be no, I'll be home in a couple of days and everything's good. But another part of me too realized like, yo, this is for real. So all I know how to do up until this point in my life is run from my problems physically 
emotionally as a run and avoid and kind of act like a class clown, get attention in toxic ways and bad relationships. I mean, I'd like to say there was some good things going on, but I, it's hard to find them. Of course, there were good times. I had good times. I had a couple good buddies I would run with that were just, they were so kind and they were so good. And I had good times with my parents too, but I was really unplugged. I was really unplugged and from the relationships. So they bring me in, they put me in the car. The guy sits in the back, the woman drives. I got this idea brewing in my head, right? I've never once in my life faced any problems in my life. And I can't start now. I keep telling myself, you can't start now. You got to get out of this situation. It's all I knew how to do. I tell them, I got to go to the washroom. So they pull over on the interstate, the little rest areas. Mm -hmm. um, I go to the washroom. I've got on a pair of little gym shorts with the elastic band, right? So the buddy, the guy's holding on to the band. Go to the washroom and I got this plan brewing and I'm like, this is a terrible idea. But I literally was on autopilot. You were going to run? You were going to try to escape? I did. I did run. So on the, this parking lot, after you hit the parking lot, there's a drainage ditch. So I just split. It was just like an autopilot. It hit me like impulsive. I was extremely impulsive as well. I didn't think things completely through. And I ran. He chased me. He hit that little embankment there and he fell over and I ran and my adrenaline was pumping so high along the highways. They've got those, I don't know, it's maybe three foot fences and there's mm -hmm. a little strip of barbed wire on the top, keep deer and stuff back. I hit that thing full speed and just rolled over it. Wow. Um, and then I was still going, I got, I ran through a nest of bees. They all, I got stung so many times and then I kept going and I was kind of on the run for like probably a few hours. It was hot. I had no idea where I was. I had no phone, nothing. I don't even think I had the shoelaces back at that time. Maybe I did. I can't remember. But after a while, I was walking on this road, and the state trooper pulled up beside me, and I was like, all right, well, this is over. Uh, I wasn't going to mess with them. I'd already been in enough trouble at this point. Like I knew that it would have just worsened my case in a sense. So I get back to the nice guy. Like you know, they, The transport people were extremely friendly. And I got back there, and let me tell you, all that changed. <laughs> That all yeah. changed, handcuffs on, and I was off the Peninsula Village. That's what the program was called. Wow. In my mind, it's like Vin Diesel or something. He's like being <laughs> your sober transport escorts, and you're just like taking yeah. off from Vin Diesel or something and running. <laughs> it's almost like a cartoon. You run into that concrete thing and then the bees, and then you are like, now what do I do? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So was it helpful going to the – did you call it Peninsula Village? Was it helpful going yeah. there? Yeah, I mean, at first there was a lot, right? So Peninsula Village was a lockdown unit. So it was a lockdown unit. It was on a peninsula, three sides, Tennessee River. Three sides water. You couldn't swim across it. One road coming in, Jones Bend Road. It was okay. a windy, it was a windy road that you kind of come down to this hill, down to the bottom here. And they had a hospital too, Peninsula Hospital, which was a psychiatric hospital. It was all fenced in. It was the real deal. And then they had this program for adolescents and it was a lockdown. So you went to this basement and it was chicken wire on the windows. There was three staff around their neck. They had these little buzzers. I later learned that these little buzzers would set off an alarm across both campuses. If there was a restraint that had to happen. So mm -hmm. it was, uh, yeah, I mean, it was a lot, right? I mean, I thought I was, 
this innocent dude that kind of got in a little bit of trouble. And now I'm in Tennessee and uh, I'm in this, right? They give me hospital scrubs to put on. So I couldn't run away. They take your shoes. You don't wear shoes. And it was just a lot. It was like three months of basically you're in this basement. There's no going outside. The meals are brought to you. It's structured down to a T. You have 90 seconds to go pee, three minutes to do the rest of your business, seven minutes for a shower, 30 minutes for your chores. When the lights come on in the morning at 6 a.m., you have three minutes to make your bed. Your bed has to get checked. You sit on your bed. You're quiet. There's no talking, no coloring, no reading, no distractions. You do schoolwork three times a week. So was it like therapy or was it just like boot count? Jail. Yeah. <laughs> like- yeah, we had a family therapist you'd meet with once a week. There was a psychiatrist you'd meet with maybe once every two weeks. And then we did have groups two or three times a day. Mm-hmm. And we would do chores and clean the place up. Wow. <laughs> so eventually you get out of there. Yeah. Yeah. So you get out of the basement, you have to work through different levels. Right. And I heard one of the things that really changed my life too in this program because I still didn't follow the rules. I didn't want to conform. I didn't want to change. I just wanted to just buy time. And eventually my parents would say, Hey, what, this isn't going to work either. And I was about two months in, right. And everybody usually left the program around two months mm-hmm. and I should have been rolling out to the cabin program. And I just was just not following rules, not wanting to do what I needed to do. And this guy, Mr. Riddle was his name. And the staff members there never got personal with you. It wasn't like your buddy. It wasn't mm-hmm. your friend. It was there. They were there to like keep order, but he really let down his guard one time with and um, he told me, like, you got to fake it till you make it, dude. Because you aren't getting it. and You're not mm-hmm. wanting to get it. You need to fake it till you make it. Me, I had no idea. I'm like, what, whatever, dude. I wasn't the biggest fan of this fella. Every time I wanted to ask a question, he would mm-hmm. make me recite the 12 steps. And if I didn't get it bang on every time, then I couldn't ask the question. So uh, I wasn't the biggest fan of, of Mr. Riddle. I don't blame but I got to give him credit because what he told me there, a couple days later, it made sense. Fake it till you make it. So what I did at that point is I fought, I saw somebody who was doing everything and they were doing everything they needed to do. And I watched them and I did everything they did. And I hated every second of it. I was like, this is the most ridiculous thing. You're a sellout. They're going to figure you out that this is not real. And I, I did that. And even though it wasn't real at the beginning, it started to become real. And I moved up the ladder. And I- This video is sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp has more than 20,000 therapists worldwide, which is one of the things that makes them so easily accessible. That is honestly my favorite thing about BetterHelp, is that you can get access to the help when you actually need it. You guys know that I talk about getting help when you're in that right moment. Timing is everything. And the last thing that you want to do is start calling around to all these different therapist practices and waiting for weeks to get a call back if you even get one. Now BetterHelp, it's not a crisis line. It's not a hotline. It's real professional therapy done securely online. It's so easy to set up an account. All you have to do is go to betterhelp.com backslash put the shovel down. Don't forget to use that link to get an extra 10% off. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P backslash put the shovel down. Going into the cabin program a couple months after that, there was maybe 10 of us boys 
Mm-hmm. Uh, we lived in a cabin. We had two staff and no running water, no power, nothing like that. I was up on a hill. Beautiful view. I mean, the most gorgeous view in the world. You have the big river. And we used to go to school three days a week. We had a little schoolhouse with teachers and then we used to do vocational work. So we'd build trails. We would do exercising. We had to cut all of our own firewood with ax and moles and, and crosscut saws and We'd walk across campus to get our meals. This is about a two-mile walk every morning, 6 a.m., rain, shine, snow, whatever it was. You're walking two miles to get your meal and coming back. We did that three times a day. Uh, We would do our therapy sessions, do our groups. There was extreme accountability. There was physical consequences, swearing, 25 push-ups. Lying was a big consequence. There was tons of rules. I was there for a year, and towards the end, too, I ended up graduating the program as an eagle. I was a level of an eagle, which... Not a lot of people do. Like, I think when I was there for that year, I might've saw one other person. Once you reach that level, you can walk around the campus freely. Um, You can help yourself to what other food. And we had food restrictions, but as an Eagle, you could help yourself to the pop machine, (laughs) unlimited ice cream, but you were disciplined at that point to where it wasn't overboard. They had a level system. You know, you started a pre-mouse and then you moved to a mouse, then you moved to a bear Mm -hmm. and and then a buffalo was alumni. But the mouse was just about earning trust. Like the mouse can only see right in front of itself. It can't see much more. The mouse is very about the mouse. So you had to work to that level. And then you jump to the bear, which is more like looking within, right? Mm -hmm. Looking Looking within and seeing what's going on with yourself. And you'd have to write goals. It would take you a month and a half to write these goals to move to the next level. And then you would hit the eagle. And then the eagle was about like seeing the bigger picture, like seeing everything, Mm -hmm. what it is and looking in the future, all that stuff. So it was what started out Amber as a heavy, heavy program. It was incredible. I mean, it was, it was a phenomenal program that's no longer around because it was the strictness of it. Right. And and it was bad for a lot of people, but overall, it was good. Yeah. So that's that. Yeah. I kind of think about what Mr. Riddle on when he said that to you. And I'm thinking, cause I've worked in not as strict as that, but I've worked in these places and I'm thinking, <laughs> he's thinking this knucklehead isn't going to figure out. He just needs to get through this maze. And he's oh, just yeah. I don't know how to tell him. And it's just funny that he's thinking that. And so he just tells you and you're like, Oh, I'm almost like, Oh, I'm supposed to just go along. But eventually the fake it, you make it did work because the simplicity of it and the discipline of it brings it back to the basics and they probably don't have programs like that anymore but they do have like wilderness programs which are similar-ish we call it like treehab and it is like effective for young people it strips away all of that garbage and builds it back to the basics you're almost like when you say i was an eagle i was like an eagle scouter and so you you graduate this program your head's kind of on straight and then what happens yeah, I mean, in the program, too, I graduated high school. If I hadn't went to this program, that would never would have been a possibility. I applied for university. I didn't get accepted into university because I had one good year while I was in this program, but I had many other years of not doing well. But yeah. they did give me a shot. They gave me some direction. They said, go to community college for a year, and we'll see how you do. So I did that. I got into community college. I got I got my own apartment a couple months out. I got a job. Like I started dating the one girl who ended up picking me up from the airport we started dating we kind of reconnected afterwards yeah things were good like i was living good i was seeing my psychiatrist i was going to therapy i was going to support groups i was plugged in i did what i had Mm -hmm. to do i was doing it and then i came up with this genius idea amber 
that I was some sort of cured. That I got it all figured out. I wanted to start living a bit. I wasn't going to mm -hmm. go extreme like I did before. But I wanted to have a little bit of fun, right? What's life mm -hmm. without a little bit of fun? So I stopped taking the meds. I stopped. I mean, this all happened over weeks or months. So I stopped going to support groups, right? Mm -hmm. Why aren't you going to support groups? Well, I don't need them anymore. And then it was mm -hmm. confrontation, right? People would say, well, that's ridiculous. You do need them. Mm -hmm. I'd cut them off. I don't want to hear that crap. Stop taking my medication that I've been on for a year before. I just stopped taking it. I mean, there's, if that's something that I wanted to do, I should have went about it the proper way, not just like a, I'm not the psychiatrist and I'm making psychiatrist decisions. Bad right. idea. That was a bad idea for me. I started letting other people into my life, right? I start kind of getting back to uh, just letting anything fly. Like I used to keep a real tight ship, right? Boundaries, respect for yourself, routine, keep a tight routine, wake up, make your bed. If it's the only thing you do today, make your dog on bed. I did it every mm -hmm. day for a year. And I mean, so I, we discipline did discipline that you learned in that program, self-discipline. <laughs> yeah. And, and all of those things I learned, I just started talking myself out of. Yeah, that's just for the program. You don't do like that's crazy. You don't do that stuff mm -hmm. out of here. Yeah, that's not how regular people live. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it just looking back in hindsight, it just kind of blows my mind how you do something literally every day for a year. And like within six months, you can talk yourself out of it, even though it provided your life so much value. Mm -hmm. It's like I was talking to my one buddy and uh, he does like a working out and stuff all the time, right? And a lot of people do that, right? And then if they miss time, it's really hard for them to get back in as opposed to just keep going. That, and that's where I got stuck is once I stopped doing the stuff, I couldn't start the engine back up. I didn't have the support. I wasn't in a structured environment. I didn't have the accountability. My folks were wanting to let me live my life. They were like, well, you're 18 now and uh, we're like – we're here for you, of course. Like, they're mm -hmm. incredible people. We're here for you. But at the same time, like, it's grow or go, baby. I mean, you got to mm -hmm. do it. We can't baby anymore. And then I got introduced to pills. You had that, I had that operation of the hernia. And I mean, that was an introduction, but I didn't know about like underground drugs and pain, pain pills. Mm -hmm. I didn't know all that. I know I enjoyed it, but I didn't know what, it, what existed. So I had my own place. I held a poker night and I had a couple of buddies over and we we're getting into the beers and stuff. And I, every cell in my body said, this is, this is terrible, man. Like, this is terrible. But I had developed that itch again, that itch to belong and that itch mm -hmm. to, to be somebody um, and to be liked. I just wanted to be liked. I didn't necessarily like myself at this point. So I need that from other people. And I uh, started drinking the beers. Guy pulled out a pill bottle and he said, uh, yeah, I said, what's that all about? Why are you taking Advil at the poker game? Like, come on, dude says on the bottle, don't take it with alcohol. Like, you should know this. And he's like, no, this is other stuff, man. I said, oh, what is it? He said, oh, well, it's Percocet. I said, oh, what's, you know, what's the point of that, right? I was naive. I knew nothing about drugs or anything. Mm -hmm. uh, I gave him five bucks. I tried it. And I was, that was how it started. I found an escape for myself. I had this escape before, but I had to work so daggone hard for it. I had to bust my ass for that. And this just made it so much easier. Five bucks. I mean, five bucks gave me, I mean, it's different, but it gave me a similar feeling of 12 months of like the straight grind of working on my life. And I got hooked on them. And then, I mean, just like everybody does, right? It started with the pills. I got into doing cocaine too. I was drinking and then it just down the cycle over the next couple of years, got into doing heroin. And 
and I got on, I was doing heroin for a year. And then I got into doing methadone. And when I was on the methadone program, I couldn't quit drinking. I was drinking all the time and I was, they were denying me methadone. They were breathalyzing me. And I slowly lost everything. That apartment, I got evicted. College I was in, I got, I put on academic probation and I got kicked out. More money, money down the drain. My folks helping me out. I lost a car. My folks had just bought me a car. It was like 12,000 bucks. Like two months later, gone. Crimes using the car, gone. At 18, 19, I got arrested again. That's when I had to plead guilty to the felony. I was either going to do a year in prison or I was going to plead guilty to the felony. Got put on felony probation. Now looking back at me telling this story, in my mind, it's going boom, 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 boom. I can piece it all together. I mean, pretty good. But at the time, I think it all boils down to like, I thought it would just blow over. Mm -hmm. You know, this whole thing, it's just a fad. I mean, everybody's drinking and partying. We're going to the pubs. We're hitting the college parties. Everything's good. Everything was good until it wasn't good. And when it wasn't good, I couldn't stop. And when things weren't good for my friends, they could stop. And we didn't see them anymore. Hey, where's Johnny? And, and where's Joe? Well, they just, it got too much for them. And they were able to shut it down. I was never able to shut it down. I just found a new Johnny and a new Joe to hang out with. Mm -hmm. Wow. And so at, at one point, you're living with your brother, I think you said. You're using, so take us to that moment. You're living with your brother, you're on methadone, which for people who may not know what it is, it's a opioid maintenance medication, which is, it's an opioid, but you go to a clinic and you get it and you have to every day usually. Can you tell us a little about that? Yeah. So towards the end, like I was dating that girl and I was living at my parents' place. I got arrested. My younger brother was getting ready for school. One day the cops came, knock on the door, bang, bang, bang. It was like 7 a.m. Of course I'm still sleeping because I'm not doing absolutely anything with my life. My younger brother's getting ready for school. My stepdad's there. He's pretty stern with the rules. I mean, he's, he's understanding and empathetic, but the rules are the rules. I mean, he went to a, he has a military school background and stuff. So cops show up. My younger brother sees all this. Like I got arrested, taken to jail, bail out. I didn't even consider going back to live at my parents' place. Like, I just knew. I saw the look on my stepdad's face, like a disappointment. I mean, from head to toe. He's disappointed in me, in the situations, in frankly, the bullshit. I mean, he was upset with it. And I don't blame him. Like, I would have been, I would have been too. Long before he was, I would have been at that point. They gave me that extra chance after I lost my apartment, right? Because I lost my apartment, lost my job, lost everything. I, the, yeah, I didn't have anywhere to go. The town I lived in was a small suburb of North, of like Raleigh, Cary, Apex area. There's no homeless shelters. There's no like supports. There's no drop-ins. It's not a big city. So none of that stuff existed. My girlfriend's girlfriend took me into her parents' place. That didn't work out. I was not a good person. So I had to leave there. So I stayed at my other buddy's place for a bit with his parents. It was so far out of town, though, I couldn't really get to this job. I was doing with my brother, and I had nothing at this point. In and out of jobs, drinking, just getting methadone every day, doing a little bit of cocaine. And I was living there, and I was probably there for, like, I don't think it was quite a year, but, like, a lot of this stuff's a blur. I was kind of out of it most of the time. And uh, I woke up one day, right? It was the strangest thing. It, was, it wasn't even after a bad night. It wasn't a bad night. It wasn't a good night. We were... We used to go to the pool. I'd find out whoever wanted to hang out. And I'd go over to food line. I'd get a 24 pack of Keystone light. And we'd come back to the pool and we'd just kick it there and finish the whole box of Keystone light. And my hope was to be able to do it again the next day, every day. But if I could do that, I would, 
I was good. And other stuff too on top of it, if I could too. And I had this sort of, this window opened up, this moment of clarity. Strangest thing happened, a spiritual experience. I mean, call it what you like. I had this thought in my mind when I woke up one day, my back's hurting, right? I'm sleeping on the floor. He's got Dexter playing on the TV. I think he's already gone to work, right? He's living a normal life. And uh, I'm thinking this stuff's going to end up killing me. And kind of up to that point, it was kind of like a big party. And I had these thoughts, like, this stuff's going to end up taking me out. And if this stuff doesn't take me out, I might take me out. Because I don't know how much longer I can go on with this. And uh, I had this thought, like, call your grandparents. And I didn't talk to them in years. I was probably 100 pounds. I didn't want them to see me the way I was. And uh, they didn't really want anybody to see me the way I was. And, like, they're not going to understand. I mean, they're, they're maybe 70 at this time. And I've already, I've already gotten so much from everybody. I've already let everybody dry resources. I feel like the shame from that is heavy. It's a really heavy thing to carry to where people care so much about you. I mean, my folks probably spent near $100,000 on that program. And they're not millionaires or anything by any stretch. They did extra shifts. They worked hard doing it. It carries shame and guilt with that, right? I just felt like, dude, I just can't figure it out. I want to stop using drugs and drinking beer, but I can't. I couldn't stop. I'm, I couldn't. So I reach out to my grandparents. I'm like, I need help. I didn't know what to say. I said, I need help. I'm on methadone, and I'm, this is all going on. And my grandfather's like, you're on methadone? He's like, their houses are blowing up around here from methadone. I said, no, that's methamphetamine. That's different. That's a different thing, Grandpa. And uh, they said, we'll be down there tomorrow. And uh, at this time, they were up in Canada, right? So they drove down 15 hours, like 65, 70 years old. They drive down. And they're like, what are we doing? I'm like, I don't know. They got hooked up with this detox in South Florida. And we ended up next day, we were on the road again. <laughs> and we went down there. And uh, I got off everything. And I didn't have the resources to go to rehab or anything like that. And I, this program was already 1000 bucks a day, right? So things add up quick. And they had to stay in a motel and drive and it adds up, right? So, but that was it. That was like my thing. And then when I got back, the cops were looking for me. It's kind of like to wrap up the whole beginning story that we started with. The cops were looking for me. My grandparents were like, this is crazy madness. The way you're living, right? Until my grandparents told me that, I didn't really see anything wrong with the way I was living, which is so sad, which is so sad when I look back. My grandparents said, this is crazy. Like, where's your stuff? I said, stuff? I don't have any stuff. I just had some clothes and that was it. They said, why don't you come up with us? We can stay with us and we'll try to, uh, we can try to figure this out. I said, dude, I don't know. Like, I didn't want to be a burden to them. Either. I wasn't sure I could get out of this. I went to the detox and I went sober at the time. They gave me some pin or something. I went to a walk-in clinic because my anxiety was through the roof. I mean, I just got the methadone, cold turkey, mm -hmm. seven days. And I mean, my skin was crawling. I didn't sleep for probably six months, like a full night's rest for six months. I lost weight. I, I didn't have to lose. So they, they told me that and they gave me the opportunity to come with them. They, I said, I don't know. Let me decide. They came back the next morning, 6 a.m. They kind of popped in. I was like, oh, banging on the door. I'm like, oh, shit, the cops are here. Like, I'm getting ready to jump off the patio. And it was my grandparents. And they're like, we're out of here. Last chance. Come with us. I grabbed a little suitcase my brother had. I put literally what I owned, which barely filled up a suitcase. And off we went. I went up there with them. And I wasn't on the straight and narrow. I wasn't doing drugs, but I was drinking the beers. 
and things were getting better. I got a job for the first time. I was doing this painting job and I actually really enjoyed it. And I'm like, man, this wasn't my dream job or anything, but I enjoyed it. I was showing up every day, 6 a.m. I was working overtime. I was working Saturdays. And I started to feel a little bit better, but I went through like detox for like six months to where like my baseline was so far down. I mean, I just felt completely off, foggy. Yeah, it was, was rough, but they were patient with me. I didn't have to worry about bills. I was so lucky to have that opportunity um, where what the world was kind of lifted off my shoulders in a sense. Obviously, I still put pressure on myself to like not be a fraud and to be a good person. I didn't have any friends. I had a few other relatives that lived up here and stuff, but yeah, I started getting it. And then that's when I, I stayed up there for about a year. And that's when I went back to visit. And then I got arrested and I went to jail. That was another year, and then I came back, and then when I came back, and when I was in jail, I set two goals for myself. I want to be an addiction counselor. I want to help people, and uh, I want to get a German Shepherd, and I ended up doing both. I went back to college. I graduated for addiction counselor. I worked at a treatment center up here. It's called Portage, and it's a youth addiction program, so it's a six-month residential program for people like 14 to 19, whether they're youth justice, children's aid services, or they're just want to get some help. And I worked there and I was a case manager and it was great. I became Mr. Ridley almost. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> code, code, code name, Mr. Riddle. Yeah. And it was good. And I worked there for like five, six years. And then I quit there and I kind of started my own business. And I actually worked at a couple other programs too. I worked as a peer support specialist at an outpatient program. I helped launch a program here in Ontario called the rapid access addiction clinic. So we were staffed by a doctor, a therapist me as a peer support worker and we ran a walk-in clinic where anybody could walk in and you could get services whether you want to quit drinking you want to get off opiates uh, you want to go to detox you want to go to rehab you want to do whatever we you just walk in and bang we're going to help you out right here right now our doctor was incredible she would meet with people for an hour i never seen anything like it in my life one hour free doesn't cost a nickel you just come in and just you got all those supports and that was really cool program to be a part of. I helped launch that in two cities. And I also did a lot of other volunteer work, shelter, soup kitchen, everything. My thing about getting sober was, yeah, I mean, I wanted to get sober for me ultimately because I'm no good without that, but I got to figure out a way to help people. Or I'm screwed. So, what is it about the helping other people that keeps you sober? It just gets me out of my own way. I mean, I get in my own way. I'll talk myself out of stuff. The way I think sometimes is not kind. It's not nice. It put myself down. And that stuff I've been working on for years, but it's still there. It's still there. I can't necessarily close the door on everything I've done before. I believe our body keeps score. Everything, whether I like it or not. And I've worked through a lot of the trauma and a lot of the situations, but there's a lot. Like jail is a traumatic place. It'd be it loud. There's violence, there's all kinds of stuff. And uh, that took its toll. And it was a great thing for me that I learned that I was going to be held accountable. But yeah, I mean, I got to get out of myself and just help somebody else. It's a fuel for the fire. What do you think is the difference between, well, I guess the better way to say this, why do some people get recovery or get sober and some don't? Yeah, Amber, the million dollar question. I mean, I can say why I didn't for a long time. I didn't really have that level of awareness, I think, right? I, I like, I kind of mentioned it a little bit too. I thought this was just a season in my life that was going to just blow over and I would find my way out. I think denial plays a big part in it too. 
Um, mm -hmm. But for me, I had so much underlying stuff. I only touched on a small piece of it, but drugs and alcohol were never my problem. I was the problem, the way I thought, the way I processed things. And what had happened, it kind of created this story that I believed about who I was, that I wasn't good enough. And when you hear that every day, all day for five years, well, whether you are good enough or not, you're not good enough. Right. And I never thought I would be. I never thought I would amount to anything. Except that I'm the bad kid, basically. Yeah. At yeah. A young age, that was just. That's all I knew. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was terrified. And even as weird as it sounds, most people want success. They want to succeed. They want to do well. I was terrified because I'd never done it. I didn't know what to expect. Look, if I went in and made a fool myself or I did this or I did that, acting up, failing grades, I knew exactly what response I was going to get from people. Mm -hmm. If I did well, I had no idea. I was scared of the unknown. And that was another big thing that held me back because – what if I try to go for it and it doesn't work out? I mean, what if I try to get sober? What if I try to like live a better life? It doesn't work out. And everybody's just laughing, saying like, look, yeah, we, we told you it wouldn't work out. Like, you know what I mean, and, and people weren't even saying that stuff. Nobody even said that. I made this stuff up in my own between my ears about that people were thinking of me. Nobody was spending time thinking about me. And we tell ourselves like, and so-and-so's thinking about us or judging us this certain way. And it's like, people are so busy with their own stuff. Like they ain't thinking about me or worried about what I'm doing. So yeah, but I think for getting sober, you got to get out of your own way. I get messages every day, all day and a half for years. And I work with people and uh, some of the people who I thought Amber were, were getting it. I went to their funeral. Mm -hmm. I've went to more funerals of people between 14 and 18 than I have between 60 and 100. I went to 15 funerals in one year of people I knew and I worked with. I worked with this one fella, and it's the most devastating story in the world. And he actually died in town here on the McDonald's toilet when he was the day before he was supposed to come back to the program. And I thought this fella had it. I felt like... He had it hard. He worked hard day in and day out for six months. And for that result, it was like, it was wild. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. I, I've been doing this for a long time myself. And I, I say, I couldn't tell you any more than just pick it random in the end, who's going to get it. I can tell you, are we headed that way or not right now? Pretty accurately. <laughs> are we on the right or the wrong right now? But in the big picture end, it's hard to say. It's hard to say. The ones you think got it, sometimes don't. Ones you think never will get it, sometimes do. I'm sure your family had moments where they thought, he's never going to figure this out. I still don't know if I'm going to figure it out, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the beauty of it. No, I mean, and I think too, like just being honest with yourself and with others. I mean, that's a huge part of what I got to do. Sometimes the honesty is not what people want to hear, right? Like, it's not always that things are going well. Like, I'm struggling too at times. And it's not like, hey, just because I got sober, like, everything's just gravy. Like, no, it's not all gravy. And I'm not going to try to trick myself that it's all gravy. But, I mean, my life completely changed. I mean, since then, too, I bought a house. I, uh, I started a business. I have three kids, married. And for most people, that's probably going to be part of life right like most people are probably going to do that but for a guy like me 
that was never in the cards. Never, ever did I ever think about doing anything like that. That was crazy. So, wow. Where do you want to go next? What do you want to happen from this point? Good, good question. That might might be the most loaded one you've asked. I mean, today I'm just focused on being a father. Being a good father is important. The most, one of the most important things I think in my life. I also got my podcast show too. I'm working on a couple different businesses. I'm just trying to take risks. I'm just trying to make a difference. I'm trying to have an impact. Mm -hmm. I, I took from the world for many years. Now I'm just, how do I give back? How do I make a difference? And when it comes down to, I, I can't change people's lives. That's not a thing. But I'm hoping that maybe people can just draw some strength from some of the stuff I do. Tell us where to find, how can we listen to your podcast? I'm everywhere, Amber. <laughs> if you got a screen, you can find me somewhere. I would say my favorite place to hang out is probably Instagram. So you can find me there on Sober Motivation. On Facebook, it's Sober is Cool. And then the podcast is called Sober Motivation, Sharing Sobriety Stories. So you can jump on there. And I interview people, celebrities to everyday Joes. I've had Brad Garrett from Everybody Loves Raymond. And, and I had Jake the Snake on there. And then I have just everyday folks who want to share their story. And it's so inspiring about what it was like for them growing up. And then kind of what the mess was like. And then how they get and stay sober. And I just find it like so empowering to see, to hear these stories. From people and that they're willing to share to help other people and listen to so many stories is there anything you've learned about addiction about recovery about any of it just from your own story and then just listening to so many stories what would you want other people to know i heard one thing that, that just hit home with me it doesn't matter if you come from yale or jail it affects everybody I think that that just rings true when you hear people's mm -hmm. stories. A lot of people have really good childhoods. Some people mm -hmm. have really not so good childhoods. And some people have loads of cash and some people have no cash. And different backgrounds of all sorts can be impacted by this. And it really puts it in perspective. And I mean, I think the other thing is how resilient sober people are. Like you figure when I was out there doing that stuff, it was pure chaos. I mean, I had to try to keep things together. And uh, if you can just find a way to use your skills that you've been able to maintain your addiction with, I'm telling you, right. some, of the, some of the biggest companies in this world and some of the biggest athletes you watch on TV and the most famous celebrities and the everyday people that show up to your office and their, produ their productivity is through the roof. Mm -hmm. They're on every day. They switch over that drive to use an escape life to build a better life. You become unstoppable. Like nothing uh, can stop you. I believe that wholeheartedly. I did a video recently called Addiction is Really Just a Misdirected Superpower. And I believe that. Yeah. And when you hear people's stories and you've seen people come on the other side of it and you see who they are without that i mean you can't help but know that and believe it yeah so yeah. true yeah all my favorite people in recovery you have to build <laughs> muscles i mean like when you listen to brad you can listen to he's talking about you know how does he stay sober he doesn't talk about drugs and alcohol he talks about 
trying to be a better person, trying to be a person that he is proud of, trying to be a good dad, trying to help other people. Because that's crazy as it sounds, that's how you stay sober. Because when you when you're a person you don't like and you're filled with secrets and shame and guilt and self-pity, you just want to numb that away. And that's when the substances come. Yeah. Nail on the head right there. I mean, you've been doing this long enough. So yeah, that that's how you do it. I mean, you have to get sober. That initial step is like you have to cut out the substances because you can't think mm-hmm. straight without it because you're always going to be wanting more and more and more and, mm-hmm. and it's never going to be enough. So that is definitely the first step. But you, the good news is that step is this one decision right now in this moment. I'm done. That's mm-hmm. it. And you're done. You're on the step two. Step right. two is how you're going to get out of your own way to get some help. You're going to call me and say, Brad, I need some help. I'm going to say, hey, you need to get to a support group. I need you to surround yourself with people who understand what you're going through. And I need you to move your feet right now while you're doing it. And what happens at that point, Amber, is a lot of people don't move when they need to move. They wait two or three days. The hangover is done. The consequences from the last night of drinking have kind of subsided. They got mm-hmm. in jail from the impaired driving and you feel a bit better. And guess what? I just want to have one, baby. I just want right. one. Right. <laughs> you know? I think that's it because even when you listen to your story, there were mo- there were multiple moments of clarity. And I think that's the way it is for most of us. We have these moments of clarity, but if you don't put action in at that moment, it's like a little flame and you have to tend to it. And if you don't, it goes away. Yeah. And it's so important um, when you have that moment to take action. I love it. It's so inspiring. I feel like the willingness and the courage it took to decide I'm going to get sober. I'm going to do it in jail. I don't care. I'm just going to do what I need to do. You just dug in and no matter what it threw at you, you just kept doing the right thing and going in the right direction and it's worked for you. Yeah. And there were some days where I didn't know it was going to work out, but I just said, like, I used to tell myself this, I'll drink tomorrow. I'll use drugs tomorrow. Tomorrow. And that's not going to work for everybody. And like, it might be bad advice. I don't know. It worked for me though, because tomorrow, what I found out is tomorrow was a good day. And mm-hmm. I didn't want to at that point. Mm-hmm. I just had to make it through those rough times, those rough days, those rough 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. I had to just get through those. That's what I found out is it was 20 minutes or five yeah. times a day. I was, I didn't have to get through the whole day. I just had to get through 20 minutes every two hours. That's it, Brad. Mm-hmm. 20 minutes. Every, you got this. And I was just pumped up. And then here we are. Love it. <laughs> you guys go check out Brad. Listen to his podcast. Find him on Facebook. Find him on Instagram. He's got a lot to share. Thanks for listening to our audio. But did you know these episodes are recorded live on YouTube? Join us Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern to participate in the discussion ask questions, give and get feedback. Any featured links discussed in this episode can be found in the show notes. And lastly, my goal is to spread recovery faster than addiction is spreading, and I can't do it alone. You can help support my mission by leaving a review for this podcast or sharing it with a friend.